The scripture on which our sermon is based this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 22. I would invite you to read along with me in your Bibles and keep them open in front of you. If you, for some reason you're unavailable or have one of those, in the Pew Bibles, you can look on page 246 for this passage as we read together. I want to remind you that this is God's word. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild gates rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you've dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, my name is Brian Sorgan Fry. I'm really glad that you chose to be with us this morning. Diane Langberg is one of the world's uh, leading trauma counselors, and she defines power as the ability to make something happen. Uh, the capacity to have impact or influence. And you realize that power can take many forms. You can have financial power, you can have social power, you can have physical power, intellectual power, all those kind of things. 
But the question becomes with, with power is, will you steward it for good and righteous ends or for evil ends? Right? Because when we see, let's say, some first responders like a fireman using his physical power to run into a fire and protect a vulnerable, make someone safe, to bless someone, you realize, oh, that's power stewarded for good. We also realize kings have power, right? You can look at somebody like King Henry VIII, and how did he use this power? He used his power to kill, to eliminate wives, to eliminate any threat of power. And so anytime you start thinking about someone with power and can I trust that person, the question is how will they steward that power? As we continue our series in the life of David and we're watching David be developed into the kind of king in many ways that, that you can trust and that you're, that's brings security, the only way with someone that, with power that you, can, that you can, can bring security so you can trust, he has to steward that power well. And David is about to be tempted with, with, with power, how we use it. And in that temptation, the way that David resists it, it actually is the same way that we, we should resist temptation and grow in godliness. And ultimately, it'll point us to Jesus who stewards his power to love and to bless. So four things about temptation. First, the place of temptation. Second of all, the temptation itself. Third, victory over temptation. And fourth, the power to have that victory. So place, temptation, victory, power. First, the place of temptation. This is verse 1 through 3. Quick background, because we drop down into this point in David's life where he is literally on the run. Because the background is in 1 Samuel 15 and 16, Prophet Samuel has told Saul that the kingdom is not his anymore. It's being given to another. And David gets anointed by Samuel as the, as the, as the new king. And since then, Saul has been spiraling. He has, uh, in, in murderous envy and jealousy and fear of losing power, he has thrown spears at David. And he has now sent David on the run, hiding in different towns as he has basically some special forces with him trying to hunt him down. That's the setting. That it tells you that David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. It's the wilderness. The place that David is going to experience temptation is the, is the wilderness. That, if you know the story of Scripture, is a huge theme. That God's people... Place, face temptation in the wilderness. It could be the Israelites in Exodus when they're delivered across the Red Sea and they're wandering in the wilderness, they experience temptation. It can be Elijah who's on the run later on in, uh, I think, 1 Kings. Uh, he is being tempted to despair in the wilderness. And even God himself, God's son in the flesh, in Jesus, he experiences fierce temptation in the wilderness by Satan. And so there's a theme in Scripture that the wilderness is, is a lot of times synonymous with temptation. Why? Because the wilderness is a place of instability. It's a place that seems out of control. It's a place where your normal resources don't work for you. Right? When I hear wilderness, if you grew up in Mississippi, I kind of would think like woods or maybe even the Delta, which has like, you know, tons of life and things like that, although it's still terrible to... I've never slept in a tent and woke up the next day and thought, I was glad I did that. And if, and if, if, you, if you say that, you're lying, I'm convinced. But still, there's, like, there's life and stuff like that. But in the, in the ancient Near East, in this Middle East, that's not the wilderness. Eugene Peterson actually traveled today uh, to wilderness of Engedi in present day, and here's what he said. He says, an expanse of badlands, country as harsh and as inhospitable as any you'd like, likely find on earth. Hyenas, lizards, and vultures are your hosts. 
In other words, when you hear wilderness, think desert. So the wilderness is a place where the power of your resources don't work anymore. It's, a, it's usually a place of suffering or an impending suffering. It's scary. It's a place of extreme vulnerability. And this is where David is, right? He has this ragtag group with him, yes, but he's separated from his family. He's hiding out in a cave, and an enemy is pursuing his life, and he has little protection, no comfort, little stability, little control. It's a place of suffering, extremely vulnerable for David. And the Scripture is saying wilderness is a place of temptation. Anytime that life feels out of control, temptation is right there. Right, and we know this is true. Like, take any like dystopian novel, or take like any kind of TV show that kind of explores this theme, like like Survivor. All right, I think we're in like the forty fourth season of Survivor or something. This theme happens every time. Right, you put a group of people onto a place with little resources and watch what happens. People will fend for themselves. People will lie. People will cheat. They'll do whatever it takes so at, they'll push others down so that they they can survive. That's the wilderness. That's the temptation. So I just want to say two things to that. First, the theme of temptation and wilderness is a, is a good warning from God to us. Because what it's saying is that if there's anywhere in your, pl- in your life that feels unsteady or out of control or you feel vulnerable or it's a place of suffering, it opens us to all kinds of temptations because the feeling is I'll do whatever it takes to get out of this place. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I want to feel comfort and security. And so there's a real sense that I will do whatever it takes to relieve suffering. But second of all, this was true of the Israelites in the wilderness. This is true of Elijah when he was in the wilderness. This is true of David now. And this is true of Jesus, the Son of God. Realize those people are all loved and cared for by God and in the wilderness. Which means Scripture holds two truths together that I have a hard time holding together myself. You can actually be loved and cared for by God and be in the wilderness at the same time. And that's really hard to hold together. Because I think being loved and cared for by God means no wilderness. The Scripture puts them together. So first, David finds himself in the wilderness, which is synonymous in Scripture with a place of temptation. So what is this exact temptation that he faces, right? This is verse 4. There's a specificity to this temptation that's pretty unique to David. But I think there's a general principle that you can pull out and it applies to us all. And the specificity is this, right? They're hiding in the recesses of the cave, David and his men fleeing from Saul. And Saul, the one who is trying to murder David, walks in because he has to go to the bathroom. He walks in alone into the cave to use the bathroom. This is the temptation. Saul, remember, is the failed king. Another king has been anointed. He has spiraled in this desperate grip of power, trying to murder David and hold on to it. David is actually the promised king. He's already been anointed. And David is vulnerable in the wilderness. But now the scenario switches. Saul is vulnerable. Saul is defenseless. Saul is in in the wilderness. He doesn't know it. And David is at a place of strength and power. And Look what, his, look what his friends tell him. His friends basically say, God has set this up for you. Make good on God's promises, David. He's promised you the kingdom. Just take it yourself. I just want you to feel the weight of that temptation. It seems like God has gift-wrapped David's enemy. The whole cause of David being in the wilderness suffering is right in front of him. 
And all it'll take is one swift swing of the sword and David's suffering will be over. David's poverty will be over. David will be the rightful king, which will be better for Israel. All he has to do is one act of disobedience, kill his enemy. I I just want you to feel the temptation of how easy it would have been to justify killing Saul. It even seemed like God's providence was making this happen. And so David's specific temptation with Saul is, yes, to take him out to relieve his suffering and, and, and grab God's promises and make them happen. But there's a general principle that in, in the wilderness, places where, where we are losing resources and we're suffering, temptation becomes really powerful because temptation says this, just disobey, just do this one thing, and your suffering will be relieved. Your life will get so much better. The reason temptation is so powerful in the wilderness is because it holds out a good thing on the other end. And it is good. It holds out comfort or success or protection and happiness. And it says, just disobey and you'll get out of this hard place. And so, all right, think about the way that like infomercials work. Uh, they're not as much a reality because of, you know, Netflix, things like that. But you know, if you ever have insomnia and you can't sleep and you're feeling empty and lonely and you like turn on the TV at like 1 a.m., there's all these infomercials that, play, that they prey on your emptiness, right? And they're like, we know you're miserable. So here's your seven steps. If you'll do these seven things or if you'll buy this product, you'll immediately be happy. And it is so alluring if you're like me sitting there watching it at 1 a.m. because you're like, I will do anything to feel happy again. And they promise a shortcut to that. That is how temptation in the wilderness works. That temptation crouches at the door because it makes it seem like, man, just this one act of disobedience and all this hard stuff will go away. And isn't that when you find yourself compromising? Right? You might be in college and you say things like, look, I know that God wants me to be a doctor. I've known that my whole life. That's why I'm in school. And if I do poorly in this class... I won't get into med school, which means I won't be a doctor, so I have to cheat. I have to. Everybody else does. And if I don't, I'll enter into suffering. I won't get the thing that God has promised me. And so you cheat, right? Or maybe money's getting pretty tight. That becomes a place of of suffering. We start feeling that reality. It's time to pay taxes. Taxes go to the federal government. Nothing gets federal government. But I, without a shadow of doubt, can manage my finances better than the government. I promise. I'm a better steward of it. And so when that time comes, here's the temptation, right? If I'm honest about my taxes, that's going to really cramp things. I know I can handle them better. So just, just lie a little bit. Just a little bit. And it'll get you out of the tough situation. Or if there's things going on in your life with a friend or with a spouse or somebody, and you need to be honest about it and confess it, What's the temptation? Don't do that. It'll disrupt your happiness. It'll create a fight. And fights are bad, we think. So I I won't confess. See, there's all these these things in the wilderness when when you're either in suffering or about to suffer because of obedience. I think, no, no way. I'm not going there because I don't, I, I want the wilderness to end. And so that, that's the place, the wilderness, you see the temptation itself. It holds out disobedience as a way to relieve your suffering. But then David shows us a pathway of victory, right? It really is amazing. 
He resists the temptation to grab the throne through disobedience. He actually begins to take vengeance, and then he restrains himself, and he just cuts off the corner of Saul's robe very stealthily, walks back in. His friends actually get upset with him, and he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, and put out my hand against him. And then Saul leaves, walks back down the cliff, doesn't even realize what has happened to him. And then when he's far enough away, David walks out with the corner of his robe, calls out to Saul, and says, I could have killed you, but I spared you. Saul, I'm telling you, I don't want to kill you. You can trust me. Look at David. It really is incredible. How did he triumph over temptation? What did that look like? Because it's upside down. You realize what happened is the cause of, the cause of David's suffering was right in front of him. And, and David, instead of his own, ending his own suffering by taking Saul's life, he spared Saul's life, thereby continuing his own suffering. Right? David, instead of using his power to kill and to curse Saul, uses his power to bless and to give life. Instead of using his anger, to, uh, his righteous anger, to kill Saul, he actually spares him and forgives him. It's so upside down. David chooses to serve his enemy instead of retaliate and immediately grab a comfortable life. It's compassion instead of hatred. Which means David stays in the wilderness longer. And just realize what David is demonstrating, because this is really sobering. David really is demonstrating a heart of godliness right here. Because he is saying, sometimes real victory over temptation, do you know what it's going to feel like? It's going to feel like losing. And that's just hard. Like, Sometimes obedience is costly. And I think we need to hear that in America. Like, if you refuse to cheat in school, honoring God's commands, loving and trusting Him in the process, you might not get into med school. It doesn't, like, magically happen because you did the right thing. If, uh, if you have a friend that's really frustrated and you seek reconciliation forgive, that doesn't mean that that relationship gets healed. That person might still be mad at you. You might do the wrong thing and still experience injustice. I wish it wasn't the case. But obedience can actually be really costly. So David shows us that the place of temptation is the wilderness. The temptation is always to get out of this hard place by disobedience. And then he shows us victory looks like actually disadvantaging your, himself and staying in a place of suffering so as to bless others. So the question becomes, how in the world does anybody do that? That is upside down. How did David resist this kind of temptation? And the key is in verse 12 and 15. He basically says the same thing. He stands up and tells Saul, the Lord is going to be the one that's going to judge you. The Lord is going to be the one that's going to avenge me. He's the one who's going to deliver the verdict. That's not up to me. Or you could say this. David was convinced that the only thing that ultimately mattered was God's verdict. And so he could trust God in the way that he's running the world. David was absolutely convinced that God was for him even when he's in the wilderness, no matter what the circumstances were. And so he was able to trust the one with all power who is God. He could still trust him with the outcome of his life even though he was in the wilderness. He didn't have to grasp for the outcome and try to make it happen. He could live trustingly. 
And because he knew the Lord, because he knew God's heart for him, he knew that even the wilderness didn't have to mean that God abandoned him. But he somehow knew that this is a part of God's plan that was loving and forming me and developing him to be a king. That's why if you read the Psalms, there are are specific Psalms that David writes when he's on the run, and you know what he often says? He says, the Lord is my refuge, my fortress. Because what David has discovered is that the wilderness doesn't have to mean the absence of God. It, It can actually mean his presence is felt there. And he's clinging to it. So Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, um, he talks about the actress Tippi Hedren. Uh, She found herself uh, back in the mid-20th century starring in one of Alfred Hitchcock's films, The Birds. And it was an amazing break for her career. But what she quickly found out is that Hitchcock uh, had a thing for blinds, and she was blind. And at some point during the filming, Hitchcock did a very evil thing with his power. He looked at her and said, if you don't sleep with me, I'll ruin, I'll ruin your career. Horrible thing to do with your power. Should have been arrested, right? And she doesn't sleep with him, and she loses her job, and her career in many ways is ruined. Years upon years later, she is actually interviewed, and someone says, well, you must hate that man. And she said, well, kind of, she said, well, no. She said, he ruined my career, but he did not ruin my life. That's fascinating. I'm not saying that's the route, she, right? Authority should have been involved, all these kind of things. But she was saying that her life was bigger than her career. And that there was something bigger going on that, that, that even he couldn't touch. And this is it. The power to, to overcome temptation will only come when you're convinced that your life, your life is wrapped up in the verdict that God gives. That your, la- that your life is wrapped up in, in the God the judge, his verdict says that you're mine and his smile is upon you. That's the only thing that will enable you to obey, even if it makes you lose social standing, even if it makes you lose comfort, even if it makes you lose job. That in, that in Jesus, God's smile is upon me and that's what counts. So how can you be certain of that? This is how I'll bring it to an end. How can you be certain in these places of extreme vulnerability that we find ourselves that God is not against you, but actually for you and smiling upon you? Well, it comes when David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, shows up. God, who takes on flesh in the person of Jesus, who has all power, he actually begins his public ministry. You know where he begins it? In a wilderness, in a barren place. So Jesus is in a scary place, very vulnerable. You know who shows up as he fasts for 40 days? Satan. And Satan assaults him with temptation. And the temptation is very similar to David's because you know what he tells him? He says this. He says, Satan says, if you'll just bow down to me, I will give you the whole world. I'll give you this whole kingdom. And the reason that's such an alluring, alluring temptation is because you know why Jesus came to this earth? He came it to get the world to get you and me, to have it all. And Satan holds out a very learning temptation. He says, I'll tell you what, I'll go ahead and give it to you, and you won't have to suffer. You can avoid the cross. I'll just give it to you right now. Just disobey. And Jesus refuses. When Satan says, just, just take the goods, just avoid suffering and humiliation, Jesus says, no. He says, Satan, be gone. And he ends up going to the cross to bear our sin, 
to bear our shame. He takes the road of hardship, rejection, and ultimately being forsaken on the cross by his own father because he wears my sin and your sin. Why? So that you can get the verdict of righteous in his sight. So that he can be with you for all of eternity. Look, the Lord has made a way through Jesus for you to have the verdict from God that never changes. And he did it by his son suffering for us. And that means you can trust Jesus in the wilderness. You can trust him with your anger. You can trust him with your shame. You can trust that he's still with you and for you, even though it doesn't make sense. Favorite pastor of mine, Joe Novison, told this story about uh, in the 1700s, there was a uh, a really good sailor who had decided finally to take his fiancée across the Atlantic and go to uh, America, get married, and live forever in this wonderful country, right? And so he and his fiance were sailing, and about midway across the Atlantic, a massive storm started happening. Waves uh, getting very scary, and the fiance comes running up and says, Are we going to die? And her fiance, the sailor, said, We are not. God will see us through. And she said, How can you be sure? And the story goes this way that, that her fiance takes out a sword, holds it to her face, and says, Are you afraid of me? And she says, No, I'm not afraid of you. And he says, Why not? She said, because I know the heart behind that hand. He says, exactly. The heart behind the hand of the storm is is our God who loves us. That is the only way to keep trusting in the wilderness is to see the character of Jesus. The heart behind the hand. Which means whatever wilderness you find yourself in, if you're in Christ, it's not because he's against you. He's working in and through it, developing a heart that can trust him. He is a good and righteous king. And so I'll, I'll just I'll end with this appeal. And the appeal is this, to actually look at Saul. And look, at how, look how the story ends with Saul. Because d- due to David's kindness and mercy, Saul is spared. And he walks out and David calls and gets his attention. Remember, this is the man that, David, this is the man that Saul has been trying to kill. And he holds up the corner of Saul's robes and he says, Saul, look at this. I've got evidence. I'm not trying to destroy you. I'm not trying to take your life. I'm here to serve you. And when Saul sees that warning, he cries out that he's messed up. He says, David, you're right. You're the rightful king. He had every reason to trust David. But you know what? Saul doesn't. It just takes one or two more chapters. He's back trying to kill David. Even though he had every bit of evidence that David was for him. This is the invitation I want to extend this morning to us. Whether you're skeptical, whether you're jaded against Christianity, or however you find yourself in whatever wilderness you're in. Look at David. He holds out this evidence, this, this corner of this robe, and says, Saul, clearly I don't want to destroy you. I want to serve you. And I'm telling you, wherever you find yourself, we have better evidence than David. Look at King Jesus on a cross an incredible display of love. saying he, Jesus is saying, I am not here to be your enemy and take life. I am here to give life and love you. You can trust him. I know it sounds too good to be true because we look and we're like, I don't trust him. I run from him. Maybe you've spent your life distrusting him. Would you dare to consider Saul? Who says, well, who in the world would re- repay my evil with good? Jesus does. And he is offered to us this morning as as a king who will not make you pay for your sins, 
but a king who offers to love, heal, and restore and overwhelm you with his grace. That's who King Jesus is. And David gives us a glimmer of that. We're invited to trust him this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you are a king that dies to make enemies friends. And so wherever we find ourselves, some of us are deep in the wilderness. Others are uh, in good places and we're probably scared those places are coming. Would you help us to see the heart of Christ? Would you, would you shift our trust from ourselves and our own power and our other resources to you? For salvation, for forgiveness, for Christ. And then make us a, a place that stewards our power to protect others, to protect the vulnerable, to bless others, and share the life that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.